The morning following my return to Burlington, I visited the post office and received my mail. It had been handed to me, and I stepped to a small desk to open some of it. When, glancing toward the delivery window, I saw what seemed to be the entire office force staring with all wonder at me. I knew instantly that I was in danger, and this was made more sure to me by the manner in which they at once sought to dispel this feeling by dispersing from the window. I at once resumed my reading, for I felt that it would be hazardous to have them know that I was aware of their acts. As soon as I could do so safely, I went to Mrs. Pittisell's house and told her I had been hastily called to Boston and New York, that she should remain in Burlington until I should return, or send for her prior to her going to the children. At this time, when I knew that momentarily there was a possibility of officers coming to the house for me, she reminded me that the supply of coal was nearly exhausted, and, not wishing to go upon the street to order more, I accompanied her to the basement, and, after removing some of the decayed boards from the floor of the coal bin, I shoveled together a considerable quantity of coal that had accumulated there. It was this circumstance that later, when she was suffering so acutely in Toronto, she distorted into the statement that she believed I was then preparing to take her life. The dispatches I had received in my Burlington mail left no doubt in my mind that detectives were following my movements, although I could not determine then how they had undermined my apparently safe plans. Later I found that, by making absolutely erroneous statements to the post office department at Washington, they had been given the right to examine all of a certain line of mail matter, thus accomplishing their purpose. Having made these arrangements with Mrs. Pittisell, I left Burlington Tuesday morning, November 13th, and reached Boston the same evening at the Adams House. The next day I secured some rooms in a quiet street for my wife and myself, and proceeded at once to arrange for Mrs. Pittisell's departure for Europe. But that evening, while writing some letters at the Parker House, a careless shadower, in his earnestness to learn their address, allowed me to know that I was being watched. As in Burlington, I tried not to have it known that I had observed it, but from that moment I knew I was in their hands. After leaving the hotel and entering several crowded stores to ascertain the number and vigilance of my followers, I adopted the only feasible plan I considered was left open to me. I wrote Mrs. Pittisell a letter, asking her to meet me upon a certain day at Lowell, Massachusetts, intending to see her and instruct her as to taking the trip alone. After throwing off my followers, I sent this letter to Burlington by express, including tickets and full directions for their journey. I then returned to my rooms, intending to tell my wife of my threatened trouble and the causes that had led up to it. I could not do it. We had been married less than a year, and during that time I had endeavored to shield her from all annoying influences, and to cause her such great unhappiness now, until I absolutely knew it was upon me, was impossible. The next day I was continually shadowed, and finally returned to my room, and while my wife was absent made a small opening in the now famous trunk. Footnote 
The tacks used later to replace the portion removed were taken from the carpet in the room, and have been compared with those still there to make good my statement that here was where the mutilation of the trunk occurred. End footnote. I then went to a relative, living in a suburb, intending to ask him to aid me in making my escape by means of the trunk, if absolutely necessary. Here again my courage failed me when I had visited him, lest it should involve him in some difficulty, and I returned to my room, resolved to meet whatever was in store for me. Saturday, p.m., November 17th. I left the house intending to send two letters, if possible. I had proceeded hardly a block when I was surrounded by four greatly excited men, two of whom said, "'We want you. You are under arrest, and it will be useless for you to try to escape, as there are four of us.' I said, "'I shall make no effort to escape.' We were near the police headquarters, where I was at once taken into Inspector Watts' private office." I knew that no time would be lost in sending to my room to search my belongings, and therefore asked that my wife be called to me, preferring to tell her myself of what was in store for her. The request was granted, and in a few minutes she was ushered into the room. Of this scene I also cannot write. No one was present save Inspector Watts, and I can never forget or fail to appreciate his efforts to make it as easy for her, for us both for that matter, as was possible. Before she had left me, I told her what had brought about my arrest and also my right name. Only true-hearted, loving wives who have been made to suffer in the same way can know what the blow meant to her. They also alone can understand her feelings expressed to me in a letter months afterwards, from which, scared though it is to me, I quote these words. Our idols once shattered, though cherishing the broken fragments as best we may, can never be the same. After she had returned to our rooms, I had a long conversation with Inspector Watts, a representative of the insurance company and a Pinkerton detective. I found I had been arrested upon the charge of stealing horses in Texas, that I was to be held upon this charge until requisition and other papers could be obtained from Pennsylvania, in order to have me tried in that state, upon the charge of conspiring to defraud the insurance company in Philadelphia. I at once waived the necessity of requisition papers, and told them I was ready to go with them. I was then closely questioned regarding the whereabouts of the Pittisle family, and knowing that Mrs. Pittisle would in a few days be in Lowell with no one to plan and care for her, and fearing lest she should see an account of my arrest and become alarmed thereby, I thought it best to tell them where she was, asking them to meet her upon her arrival. They thought it best to go to Burlington, and it was there arranged that they could escort her to Boston, but it was agreed not to place her under arrest. I told them that Pittisall and the other children were in the South, not wishing to deviate from Mrs. Pittisall's understanding of his condition, until I could see her. In my interview with Mr. Perry, the company's representative, it was agreed that in consideration of my aiding them in clearing up the case, that I could depend upon the company's influence and aid in selecting a suitable location for a home for my wife in Philadelphia. That my name then only known to a few persons, should be withheld. 
allowing me to appear before the public as H. H. Holmes, thus shielding my relatives from disgrace. That I should, upon reaching Philadelphia, see and talk with Mrs. Pittisell and plan for her future, and that my wife should visit me upon my arrival there. And that principally they could use their best endeavors to so prejudice her against me that she would not care to visit me. Upon the following Monday evening, I started for Philadelphia in company with Detective Crawford, being chained to him, in fact. Upon this trip, my wife came into the car in which I was traveling to visit me for a few minutes, and while there saw Mrs. Pittisell and her two children for the first time in her life. They being then in the same car, nor had she even known of the existence of such a family until my arrest in Boston. She had known of Pittisell in Fort Worth as a man working for me by the name of Lyman. Upon reaching Philadelphia, I was placed in a darkened cell in the city hall, and here, figuratively speaking, the thumb screws were applied. I was not allowed to see or hear from my wife. Save that she was seriously ill, Mrs. Pittisell and the two children I knew were in the same place of confinement, but only by hearing their voices or the cries of the child, as I was not allowed to speak to them. After a time, I was taken to the photograph department and weighed and measured, a process which has been too often described for publication to be of interest. Save to say that so scientifically is it done. That a person once placed under the ban in this way has little chance of ever escaping recognition. Later, my photograph was also taken with what must have been a magical camera, judging from the thousand and one different reproductions from time to time appearing in print. Returning to my cell, Superintendent Linden visited me and advised me to see no attorney, and wishing to retain his good will if possible, I for a time gave heed to this. He also urged me strongly to tell him Pittisell's exact location. Upon Friday, October twenty-third, I was committed to prison upon the conspiracy charge. But before I went, I made a detailed statement of our attorney's connection with the case, for I had found that he had been the cause of my trouble, and was then standing back, as he had said he should do, relying upon his reputation as a member of an influential firm of lawyers to escape trouble himself. What followed during the next weary months of my life, I feel that I can best express by copying from my prison diary, kept during this time, which now lies before me. I give such portions as relate more particularly to my case, stating first, however, that during all my life I had always been active and had taken much out-of-door exercise, and that on this account, together with worrying about my wife's safety and financial affairs. It seemed for a time after my imprisonment commenced that I should die from the effect thereof. End of section eleven.